Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Brian Kaplan. Brian is a professor of economics at George Mason University and a New York Times bestselling author. He's written The Myth of the Rational Voter, named the best political book of the year by the New York Times, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, The Case Against Education, and a long list of other books and articles that I've enjoyed reading over the years. Today, he's here to talk about his new book, Don't Be a Feminist, Essays on Genuine Justice, which includes that advice to his daughter in the opening chapter. Brian, welcome to the show. Fantastic to be here, Tom. You know, you're taking up a whole bunch of my time here because I'm about halfway through your fantastic book, The Case Against Education. Now you've come out with another one. As I was saying, when we chit-chatted before we got on here, I've still got a 2012 essay called Why is Democracy Tolerable? Evidence from Affluence and Influence. I think that one's coming up on its 10th anniversary. So oh, man, I got lots of Brian Kaplan floating around my head, but you've got this new book, Don't Be a Feminist, which is filled with a lot of great writing on a whole wide variety of topics. Why did you decide to title the whole book after that opening essay? Right. Well, I'm doing eight different books of essays and each one of them, whatever essay I pick for the lead essay is the title of the book. And then there's a subtitle that gives you an idea about the, what the other essays are like. The subtitle for this one is Essays on Genuine Justice. So the first section is basically on the woke or DEI or what I like to just call the social injustice movement. And feminism is an important part of that. And that's also the longest essay and the one original essay in the book. The others are basically the very best things that I wrote on this topic between 2005 and 2022. And then there's a bunch of other sections in the book where I go over the economics of discrimination. I go, I talk about immigration and you know, quite a bit more too. And would you say that there's something about the feminist ideology that is kind of related to all of the other things that you talk about here? Right. 
Well, it's very closely related to the diversity inclusion or social justice or whatever you want to call it. And also, you know, one of the, there's one a couple of the essays where I describe this uh, the woke movement as an Orwellian movement, one where their official rhetoric is very different from what they actually do, uh, as well as one where they're just trying to hijack normal language and make and sort of build in the, the rightness of their own views as just part of the definition of normal words. Uh, so yeah, I start that essay, Don't Be a Feminist, a Letter to My Daughter, with the question, well, what is feminism anyway? If you go to a lot of dictionaries, they'll just say it's simply the view that men and women should be treated equally economically, politically, socially, so on. But there's a big puzzle with that, which is that I've got a major survey where it turns out that almost all non-feminists believe that too. So we have a bunch of dictionaries defining it as a view as if it is unique to feminism, when it is in fact a totally standard view, I describe this as like saying that feminism is the view that the sky is blue. I believe feminists accept the blueness of the sky, but they're not the only ones. And then the question comes up, well, if that's not a good definition, what is? And what I propose is this. Feminism is the view that our society generally treats men more fairly than women. It's the view that our society generally treats men more fairly than women. Which, again, I say is a much better definition because almost all people who call themselves feminists would just say, well, of course, a society treats men more fairly than women. And on the other hand, people who do not accept the term, they'll either be agnostic or just say, no, that doesn't seem like it's that way. To and what are some of the ways in which some of the outcomes we see, like, let's just say the assertion, at least, that men would make this a little bit more, even if you eliminate things like taking time off for childbearing or for raising children, et cetera, that men make a little bit more for the same work. What, what explains that? Or is that just not true? Well, of course, if all you were saying was men make a little bit more, you wouldn't be very motivated to be a feminist if that's all that you're saying. Of course, the usual feminist view is that there's a large disparity then when social scientists go and look at the numbers, that's where they generally come away with your position saying, well, almost all the difference seems like we can explain it in some pretty obvious ways that have nothing to do with discrimination. Maybe there's a little bit left, but it's hard to say, right? So, you know, there's obviously things like how long, how long you're in the labor force, whether you're taking time off to raise kids, also things like total number of hours you're working, whether you're working in STEM or not working in STEM, whether you're doing jobs that are unpleasant where you are out in the heat or in the cold or whether you're in a air conditioned or heated office. So on that part, I, you know, I am an economist. So I go over just the standard evidence. Usually what you'll, you'll get from modern data is that just you going and adjusting for some pretty obvious factors narrows the seemingly very large gender gap to something like seven to 8%. And then the question is what explains the rest? There are a lot of differences that are not being accounted for in those numbers in the you know, things just like, uh, let's see, so, you know, like whether you're in a STEM field or not STEM field, for example, STEM pays more for obvious reasons, not discrimination. STEM people can do much more amazing things than non-STEM people. It's a good way of thinking about it. So, yeah, I mean, I would say that at minimum, you know, the most that you could say is maybe there is a, a tiny difference between genders. Even that, though, I would say, just given how easy it is to make almost all the difference go away with some obvious factors, to think that the remaining difference is not explained by some of the less obvious ones seems pretty much jumping the gun. Yeah, I think you talk a little bit about 
the opportunity it would present. If truly there were people out there that were just offering more money to men for really precisely the same work, how would the market correct that? Right. I mean, if someone says, hey, here's a great way to make a billion dollars, invent a new kind of clean energy. And someone would say, yeah, well, I guess that would work, but that's super hard. Hardly anyone knows how to invent a new kind of clean energy. So the fact there's a billion dollars sitting on the table forever does isn't really very decisive. On the other hand, fire all your men and replace them with equally qualified women for less money. This is not like inventing a new kind of clean energy. This is something any moron could do if it were really true that this would work. If it really were true that men are being paid more for exactly the same work to a substantial degree, this would imply the existence of a complete get-rich-quick scheme for any employer. It, like, this would not require you know, a lot of intelligence, a lot of skill, just be like, you know, keep wages low and then fire all the men, replace them with women you know, if this story were correct. Now, again, you might say, well, maybe you know, if it was like a really tiny difference, 1%, then maybe that's not going to turn you into a billionaire, although at a large enough firm, it would. Is it true to say from an economic perspective, though, that the market would tend to find that last two or three percent? Well, that's, you know, so that's, that's a, a good question. I mean, what I would say is, you know, despite all of my free market fandom, I'm willing to say, look, there may be some very small differences that markets aren't good at eliminating, partly because there are so many regulations against the market for hostile takeovers. For example, if you knew a way to make Disney 10 percent more profitable, and I think in the last couple of years, most of us do know a few ways to make Disney a lot more profitable, like stop alienating everyone who isn't left-wing from coming to see your movies and watch your shows. The problem is that there are very hard anti-takeover laws that would make it really hard to buy up Disney stock, fire the management, and replace them with people that would show respect to people from a wide range of political views. And especially if you happen to be sitting on a pile of fantastic Disney intellectual property, like Snow White and all that and the Incredibles from a bygone era, they're not going to go bankrupt just because they aren't squeezing out the last one or 2% of profit. Um, right? So if there, if hostile takeovers were, we, we were not so heavily regulated, then maybe we could be more optimistic. So, I mean, basically the way that the market handles these small, the smaller problems with either bankruptcy or takeover, right? Bankruptcy, things have to get pretty bad before you go bankrupt if there were just one or two mistakes. And you know, remember it's the real world. All known businesses make lots of mistakes. Right? So if you are doing well on other margins, you can afford to make a few mistakes on purpose. Although with the hostile takeovers, it's quite different. If you have read about the good old days of hostile takeovers, when all you do is buy controlling share of the stock, show up in the meeting and say, hi, you're all fired. Get out of here. I've got the stock. That is no longer legal to do, sadly. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you're enjoying the content here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can support my efforts here a couple of ways at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. You can join my Patreon for as little as $3 per month and get machine transcripts to every episode and access to my members-only MeWe group. While all Access patrons also get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos, or you can become a VIP patron to get all of that, plus access to all of my online courses and a signed copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there. Find links to all the ways you can support the show 
at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. about that somewhere else because this sounds like not only like a familiar argument but it sounds like you is that in this book this came this came later actually that i started thinking more about what's been done to the market for hostile takeovers there's a great true story of sam the banana man who was an immigrant he spoke with a very thick accent he actually was in the fruit market he sold out to united fruit and then part of his part of this part of the sellout was a non-compete clause. He wasn't allowed to re-enter the market. He didn't like how United Fruit was being run, so he just went and bought up a controlling interest in United Fruit. Showed up at the board meeting, read them the Riot Act in his thick accent. The uh, CEO famously said, "I can't understand what what you were saying." And then Sam the Banana Man just said, "You're fired. Can you understand that?" <laughs> and he did it. Actually, this is—he <laughs> really. You know, this was really the the good old days. I think he actually ran off in a huff. They all laughed at him, and then he came back holding all of his proxies, cackling with glee. And that was the end of them. Some, you know, one guy who you know was barely you know, like he spoke English with a thick accent. He didn't seem like the kind of guy that these wasps were going to get behind. But because he had these stocks. That was it for them. They were fired and he took it over and ran it the way that he thought was a good idea. It's interesting, of course, and I agree with you that, you know, free markets, no matter how laissez-faire, are not going to create a utopia, but that this one government intervention against something completely unrelated is now impeding the market's ability to correct something else. Right. I mean, you know, that's, that's very common. You know, of course, even with hostile takeovers that, you know, that's not going, you know, there's, there's a lot of cost of assembling hostile takeovers. So you've got to be screwing up a lot or just be big. If you're screwing up a little bit, but you're big, then it's worth buying you out too. It's worth doing a takeover for that. But, you know, if you just go and look at restaurants that you know, usually you can go and see a bunch of areas where probably they are screwing up. And if they're, if they're not, if they're not publicly traded, there's not that much you can do other than tell the owner they're messing up or wait for bankruptcy. On the other hand, if it's a publicly traded company, there is this long-standing method. In terms of the regulations that are against this, one of the big ones is just publicity. Basically, right now, once you buy a few percent of the stock, you've got to announce that you've done it, which then allows everyone who's anticipating your takeover to grab the, uh, most of the profit away from you. The whole point of doing it is to make it secret and then spring it on people so that you are able to capture most of the, of the gain of, what, of, your, of your contribution yourself. And also so that you can buy the stock when it is still undervalued. Right? So like when you have to go and reveal what's going on, that really tends to defang it. There's also like waiting requirements now. You have to give them time. It's like, hey, the whole point of this is that they're messing up right now and I want to get rid of them now. Yeah. yeah so yeah, hostile takeover is really underrated. And yeah, if we could just let her rip, that'd be great. I just can't help thinking about Michael Douglas in Wall Street where he's... <laughs> going on about I can't figure out what all these vice presidents do, you know, and he's supposed to be the villain from Oliver Stone's perspective, but really he makes a lot of sense in that scene. 
saying he wants to do just that. When you mentioned something like Disney alienating their viewers or <laughs> customers, yeah, basically half of them or some large percentage, it kind of begs the question that you do write about, where are all the right-wing corporations? Where are the ones that are alienating left-wing people? How come we don't see that? I mean, there's are, there are a few, of course. You'll have, obviously, right-wing think tanks. You'll have conservative churches, conservative charities. There are some like that. There was a gift store that I wandered into in West Virginia that was very right-wing, quite obviously. But yeah, it's true that out of Fortune 500 companies, you basically don't see any that are vocally right-wing or that make an effort. Or the, like if you, went, if you walk around there to see a bunch of signs saying, this is a colorblind firm, don't make false accusations otherwise, that would be very unlikely. There's a, a few things going on here. So my good friend, Richard Hanenya, he just says a lot of it is just that the left cares more. So basically, if you anger your left-wing employees, you get them really angry. If you anger your right-wing employees, you just get more, you get more grumbling than actual wrath. I think that's part of it. I think another part is the discrimination laws that are on the books, where that really does tilt the scales very heavily towards the left-wing view. Because you're, like, you're just basically, you're never going to get sued for having a bunch of signs saying, we fight systemic racism here. Whereas if you have a bunch of signs saying that this firm is extremely fair and be very careful before you make accusations against someone because we fire people for false accusations. I think that is something where you are actually basically calling down the lightning upon yourself to see what happens. doesn't mean that you couldn't get away with it with a smaller firm, but it does mean that it is just not safe for a firm to very loudly be right wing, especially a larger firm. Almost seems like some of the reasons you present and you do present more in that chapter, but that there's this implicit psychological aversion to the presumption of innocence. Oh. <laughs> in other words, you know, it's always good to say there's some injustice happening, but it's never popular and nobody ever wants to hear, you know, someone's unfairly accused of this or that or the other thing. And that I just think of all the people who want to torture and kill people accused of something like pedophilia. It's never popular just to come in and say presumption of innocence. I know that's really off the economic. Um... Yeah, well, I mean, but there's a lot of economics here because it comes down to this. The higher the bar is for proving guilt, the fewer innocent people you punish and the more guilty people you let walk away. As for how high the bar ought to be, you need to realize, well, there is a trade-off. If we make it really easy to convict, then we're probably going to convict a lot of innocent people. On the other hand, if you make it really hard to convict, we're probably going to release a lot of guilty people. A great deal of what's been going on around wokeness in the last 10 years is being ideologically hostile to the idea that, the, that you are punishing innocent people in order to have an excuse to just make the standards really low. Because it is hard to cope with the idea of, yeah, we're going to punish a lot of innocent people because we're just so worried about letting any guilty people go free. It's easier just to say, no, no, there's not any innocent people. Right. And as to how you would say that, well, the easiest one is something like the feminist or the BLM slogan of, you know, like white, you know, you know white silence is violence. If even just sitting and being a bystander is actually a form of violence, then almost no one is innocent. Basically, it's saying if you're not a full time activist, you're guilty of being racist. And, you know, I think a lot of the same thing is going on with the feminist movement, where if you just said, look, I haven't done anything to women, so I don't want anyone complaining about my behavior. Right. So, or as I say in a later chapter, you know, my hands are clean. I haven't done anything to women. Don't complain to me. That is a highly unpopular attitude, one which lead many people to say, that is a super guilty thing you just said. 
merely claiming to be innocent is itself a sign of guilt because you're trying to distance yourself from the collective culpability of all people of your gender. And he said, well, why would I be culpable on account of my gender? Yeah, that's a really good question. This one that I think again, of course, you know, like, like just to be clear, you know, most people who call themselves feminists are just normal, nice people who don't like seeing women being mistreated. But the intellectual leaders, on the other hand, are fanatics. And they are the kind, and one sign of fanaticism is saying merely failing to be an activist is a kind of guilt. And you talk about what you call facetiously implicit and structural witchery. So yeah. <laughs> it kind of applies not just to feminism, but the whole agenda of victim groups. What do you mean by implicit and structural witchery? All right. So here's the thought experiment. You are the witch hunter in, in colonial Salem. You do an exhaustive study and you can't find a single actual witch with a cauldron and a broom doing witchy things. All right, so what do you say? Well, you could just say, oh, it turns out we were wrong and there's no witches here in Salem and this witch hunt should end. That's something you could say. On the other hand, you could redefine what it means to be a witch and say, well, look, if by witch you mean someone with a broom and a cauldron, then yeah, there aren't any. But if by witch you mean someone that doesn't go to church every single day, then we have a lot of witches. If by which you mean someone that, that conducts tra trade with Catholics, then we have a lot of witches. If by a witch you mean you know, someone who has ever told a joke about the Bible, well, then we've got a lot of witches. And so we have lots of witchery, but it's just implicit and structural rather than the regular kind. Right now, this is a fable, but it is a fable with a purpose. And that is, I think, that is a lot of what is going on with accusations of systemic racism or implicit racism or systemic sexism or implicit sexism, which is in the modern world, it's just very hard to locate the actual person saying, I hate race X, I hate women. These people basically, it's not on the internet, you could find them, but to meet them in real life or to see them in any kind of important position would be a miracle. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. How could I think about love with a girl like you? other hand you just change the standard such that white silence is violence for example and you say yeah there's tons of white violence against blacks 
what is their violence? It's the violence of silence. Them failing to be full-time activists who worry about this stuff. Well, in that case, yeah, you're always going to go and be able to find massive evidence of systemic racism because, yeah, guess what? Most people aren't activists and don't really care about this stuff very much. But and then my question is, well, yeah, I mean, like, why would they? Like, people are living their lives. There's thousands of bad things going on in the world. And why is it that your cause should be the thing that they think about all the time? I was going to say, it's funny that I think when you were born has a lot to do with how you see this. And I, I was born in 1965, so I was generally entering the workforce in the early to mid 80s. And it seems to me that we thought of this kind of thing. I mean, it's not like there wasn't some systemic racism at one time in the country when laws on the books imposing disabilities on African-Americans. Right. Or is that systemic or is it just regular old racism? Right. You don't need the word systemic if there's a law saying blacks can't go and work as, uh, as doctors. It's just plain old racism. You add the word systemic well, to explain why you can't find any actual specific guilty people in important positions. Yeah, fair enough. And I guess what I was thinking when I see the word systemic, it's part of the system, maybe official or legal. It's on the books. You have these laws. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of an equivocation between systemic as in like totally overwhelmingly blatant and systemic as in a seemingly invisible. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Visible to the naked eye, but we know it's there in massive quantities. And I guess my point was that this was something that in my life experience, I just didn't see. I mean, one of my first real jobs, my boss was black. And besides being a kind of a nerd, nobody thought of that. And it just didn't seem like it was a thing. And then if you were born later than me, it seems like almost the kinds of witch hunting you're talking about made this huge comeback. You know, there, it seemed like we had a little bubble for a while where it was just kind of going away. I don't know if you agree with that. You seem to be somewhere around the same age as me. So I don't know what your life experience has been with this. Yeah, that, that does make a lot of sense. It does seem like interest in this stuff died down quite a bit in at least mainstream society during the 90s. I think my colleague Tyler Cowan has said that 9-11 might have just postponed this stuff because it gave people a different crusade to worry about for 10 years, the war on terror. There is something in human nature where they just want to have a crusade against something or other happening all the time. So perhaps that's what's going on. In academia, this stuff never went away. Although, yeah, there was, again, a period when like you just weren't hearing about it very much, and then suddenly it comes back with a vengeance. I remember back in 2008, my colleague Alex Tabarrok saying, yeah, now that Obama's been elected, that's the end of this. We never have to hear about it again. Anytime anyone complains about racism, they'll say Obama debated it, so why can't you? However, obviously that's not what happened. I, I laughed in his face when he said that. I said, no, that's not how people are at all, right? It's like... I mean, this, there, there's a great part in Herbert Spencer writing in the 19th century where he says, look, back when practically every child was doing hard labor, no one complained about child labor. Now that it's down to a small percentage of the population, people act like it's the worst thing that ever happened. And our society is the, is the most abusive of children in all of history. And he went through a bunch of other examples where when it basically when a problem, when a problem is overwhelming, people just live with it. And the idea you could get rid of it just doesn't make sense to people. Once the problems through natural processes become small, that's where you usually get a giant moral panic that it continues to exist. And then people come in with hyperbolic language about how we're the greatest monsters in history, which is just pretty silly. And you say, yeah, it's just, you know, once, once we get really worked up over a problem, it's a sign that we've almost beaten it. And until then, you know, then, and then it's sort of something you just got to live with, people just live with.
It's funny, too, on the subject of child labor, I think it was Andrew Bernstein wrote a book, and I'm going on memory here from at least 10 or 12 years ago, it was called The Capitalist Manifesto. And the point he makes in there is that basically all children worked for most of history. And then when the Industrial Revolution made people productive enough to get it down to, as you say, where most of them don't need to anymore and, and therefore didn't or their parents didn't need to send them to work to keep the family from starving, then the government comes in and passes a law and claims the victory. Yeah, we abolished child labor, the last 2%, not even thinking, well, what happened to that 2%? Why were they working? And did this actually help them? Yeah. And on top of that, of course, remember there are jobs and jobs. There's using kids as chimney sweeps, and then there's letting them work a cash register at a donut shop, very different kinds of work. But so as I explained in my education book, most jobs that kids would do are in many ways more pleasant than being in school, right? And if a kid doesn't like school, you say, well, well, it's boring and not fun and you're uncomfortable and you're sitting still and you don't like it, but this is important as preparing you for your future. If you were to say, yeah, well, why not let a 10-year-old work as a cashier at a donut shop? Because yeah, maybe it's not fun, but he makes some money and it's preparing him for his future. It's the same argument. It's a good argument. You know, there's a million different directions this book goes in, and they're all related, but I think somebody reading the table of contents will say, well, what does this have to do with feminism? But there's one more I think that I've got to ask you about, because this reminds me of my own childhood. My father was always recommending movie. Oh, you've got to see this movie. And, and the one that I never actually watched, I still haven't to this day, was one called Viva Zapata. You got to see Viva Zapata <laughs> and everybody's always, you know, ready to support a revolutionary, but why should we not Viva Zapata? Why shouldn't we say long live? Well, Zapata didn't live long, but why, why shouldn't we feel good about the Mexican revolution? So this piece I got started thinking about when I was reading famed anthropologist, Oscar Lewis talking, talking about Puerto Rico, and he was very unfavorably comparing Puerto Rico to Mexico. Now he's writing around 1960. This is not that long. You know, this is like 40 years after the end of the Mexican Revolution. And he's saying, yeah, like Puerto Rico's never really had a good revolutionary tradition. And so it's just you know, fundamentally a sick society. Whereas Mexico, on the other hand, now there, there's real revolutionary spirit. And, it, and even though you know, they've institutionalized it a bit, but still, you know, the, the wonder of the Mexican Revolution lives on. Right now, I'm reading this and saying, huh, definitely if you visit Puerto Rico, it looks a lot better than Mexico. But then furthermore, well, what happened during the Mexican Revolution? So I, you know, if you go to Wikipedia, here's a striking thing is in general, Latin American revolutions against Spain and other colonial powers, as well as the Mexican Revolution, Wikipedia normally gives you a pretty good body count. But for Latin America, it's, there's a lot of weird question marks, like who knows how many people died in the Bolivia getting independence from Spain. And the Mexican Revolution is one where there's still a lot of question marks, how many really died. So what I did there is I tracked down the best piece that I could find demographically estimating how many died in the Mexican Revolution. And it's just an astronomical sum. It looks like it was one, one of the bloodiest wars in of the 20th century, both in not, not just as a percentage of the population that died, but in the total body count. And when you go and read about it, it's like, well, so millions died. And for what exactly? Like, you know, if you were to say, well, without it, we wouldn't have the fantastic country that is modern Mexico. It's like, well, Hmm, is it that fantastic? Like, is it really so much better? Like, like, well, what would it have looked like without the revolution in that case? It still has you know, a, a, a lot of violence, a lot of poverty, right? And 
Anyway, so went there and, you know, when it was just going over the numbers, you know, like massive body count. When you go and read the sordid history of what happened, basically it starts off fairly peaceful. A few thousand people die, but then almost immediately revolutionaries turn on each other and becomes a multi-wave bloodbath and then ends in a dictatorship, right? A dictatorship with a lot of sympathy for the Soviet Union. They're not full-blown communists, but nevertheless, it's, you know, it's, in the general spirit of Marxism-Leninism in the early years. Then there's like a follow-up war called the Cristero War, just a few years afterwards, where they're trying to violently crush the Catholic Church. Again, fitting with the Marxist-Leninist model of declaring war on religion rather than you know, freedom from religion, not freedom of religion. So yeah, that's, and, then, and then it's like, so like, why is Oscar Lewis so excited about this revolution, which looks like a horrible bloodbath, and it ends in what? It's not at all clear that it was that made things better than they would have been otherwise, even because, you know, of course, you have a lot of people just starving to death in the chaos. Right? And then, you know, the, you know, they're so excited about breaking up plantations. A lot of that you just hand it over to one of the revolutionaries. So you got a new, here's your landlord, the revolutionary who needs to be rewarded for his struggle. And you can keep, you can pay your rent to him. Right. And that's where I remember this line from, I think, Batman Begins. No, 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 no. It's the next one, The Dark Knight. This is where Michael Caine playing Batman's butler says, you know, some men just simply want to watch the world burn. And that's why I call this piece, some men just want to watch Mexico burn. There's this romance revolution where people will get excited about it, even though the immediate effect is obviously terrible and millions of people dying. In the long run, effect's totally questionable. So yeah, why would you support something like that? The real interesting part of that and something that I never hear talked about, and I'm not sure it's ever really occurred to me personally, is you're not just counting up the people who were actually alive, who were killed during the war, but all the people that weren't born and the demographic destruction that occurs from a bloody war like that. Very interesting. And the economic effects of all that. Yes. I mean, of course, morally, you want to be careful about equating people that were never conceived with murder. I mean, otherwise, we're all murderers unless we've gone up to our biological limit. But to go and say that it's right, increasing infant mortality, that's you know, very comparable, or child mortality. To say that it's making people so impoverished and terrified for their lives they don't want to have kids, that's not quite the same as a murder. But it's still saying, gee, like your revolution is so terrible that people are worried about having, about having children as long as this terrible war is going on. What kind of a person would start such a war? The other thing that occurs to me about the story you tell about Mexico is how many places anti-colonial revolutions succeed. I'm thinking even of the sainted Gandhi, but (laughs) then the economic system they bring in, it leads to even worse conditions for the people. I think the best thing that ever happened to India is they got rid of the Gandhis, right? Yeah, it's a little complicated. I think Indira isn't really related to to Mohandas Gandhi. She was actually the daughter of Nehru. Unless I'm really confused about the family tree, maybe she has some connection. But yeah, like so, I think I've, I've got a piece. I have an essay also in the book on you know like, like you know, blame nationalism for both colonialism and anti-colonialism. Like I'm in no way a fan of colonialism. You have a giant bloodbath in order to go and establish colonial rule. At the same time, I'm also opposed to anti-colonialism, where you've got a stable system that isn't absolutely terrible. And then some people say, this is the worst thing in the world. It would be worth fighting any war by any means necessary. Let's get our independence. And you've got a new horrible civil war that happens. So like in my you know, general, I'll say like, once you've got peace, like be super cautious before saying that like, like and by any means necessary, we have to change the system. I'm like, well, wait a second. 
Like you're talking about having another civil war and you don't like, we know that's going to be terrible and we don't know how, like what's going to happen afterwards just because it's going to be people who are indigenous to the area ruling you doesn't mean they're going to be good people. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, of course, with the dissolution of British India, you have a horrible bloodbath there. Total body count. Again, that's one where estimates vary widely, but I think when like half a million to 2 million people dead in pogroms all over that area. And then what's so great about what happens afterwards is multiple wars between the successor states, very slow economic growth for many decades until finally they throw up socialism. Yeah, so, I mean, that's one where you know, I really will say a pox on all their houses. So it really does all come down to nationalism, the idea of, oh, our country's so great, let's go attack another country, murder a bunch of people, take them over, bad. Also, our country's so great, only people from this country should rule people from this country. Also terrible. It's like, like, why not go and look at the facts and just see, look, we got peace right now. How bad is it really? Right? If you're going to reform things, make, you know, try to reform them for the better, not just go and start smashing bases and then hoping that you'll make something new afterwards that'll be better. It's funny reading your stuff, Brian. Sometimes I wonder if I've ever been told anything that was true because <laughs> you blow up so many things we just take for granted. The book is called Don't Be a Feminist. But as you can see from our conversation here, there's quite a bit in there besides talking about feminism. Brian, where's the best place for people to go to look at some more of your work? What's the best website? Right. So for this book, this is an Amazon, as an Amazon exclusive. The paperback is 12 bucks. You can get the ebook for $9.99. All my books are available on Amazon. I have this series of books of essays. There's going to be eight books. This is the third volume of the series. And you know, by the way, so there's a lot of people who look at that title and they feel like it's need, needlessly aggressive or antagonistic or hostile. The full title of the lead essay is Don't Be a Feminist, A Letter to My Daughter. I mean, the reason why I was thinking about this, I mean, I have a 10-year-old daughter. Once I had a daughter, I think, well, you know, given her demographics, she's in a highly educated family here in the U.S. She's probably going to be a feminist unless I have something to say about it. What should I tell her about this view? Right? And that is what really got me motivated to write this. I have been thinking about this for a while, but it does not in any way come from a place of anger. Rather, it comes from, I have some thoughts about the subject. I've been thinking about this for a long time. I think I have something to say that you are not likely to hear somewhere else. And like, you know, my first goal, honestly, is just to help my daughter. I don't want her to live a life of antipathy and self-pity. I think this is what feminist elites are pushing on people. It doesn't mean that they usually succeed. Like I said, I think most feminists are just nice people who don't like seeing women being mistreated. But if you take this stuff really seriously, I think it is very bad for you, as well as bad for other people that know you because... It is a doctrine that just encourages you to treat men especially unjustly because you want to pin some collective guilt on them for a mistreatment that actually is one that is much more complicated than feminists would say. As I explain in the book, you know, there's a bunch of ways that men seem to be treated more fairly than women. There's also a bunch of other ways that it seems like it goes the other way where women seem to be treated more fairly than men. And then the real thing of interest is looking more closely and seeing, well, why do these differences exist? And does it really represent unfairness at all? You know, for example, if you see that 95% of all people in jail for murder are men, does that show our society's treating men unfairly? Maybe, but it probably has a lot more to do with the fact that men do a lot more murder, <laughs> right? And once you admit that male failure can explain worse male performance, you know, bad male behavior can explain bad male results, 
maybe it's also true that good male behavior could explain good male results. You know, a book that gave me a lot of inspiration was one called Why Men Earn More by Warren Farrell. So one thing he does in the book is just give 20 re- 25 reasons why men make more money than women on average. But then he says, look, the point of this is not to rub this in anyone's faces. The point of this is to say, hey, if you want to make more money, here's 25 ways to do it to make more money. Although once you realize the 25 ways are often unpleasant, you may say, oh, well, in that case, I don't want more money. I'd rather have good quality of life. Yeah, it's funny. I can't remember the name of the show. I only remember it was the big guy from Seinfeld with the deep voice. And his wife says, you know, I quit my job. He said, what'd you do that for? And she said, it was just making me miserable. And he said, everyone's job makes them miserable. That's what they got to pay you to do it. So, was, that, was that Putty or who was that? The, the, I can't remember his name or his character from Seinfeld. And then he had this other show where it was him and his wife and they were on a baseball team. I don't know. But that line is stuck with me. I have no idea what the show was, but it was like, yeah, you know, sometimes you get paid more for doing things that other people don't want to do. Your skill is scarce or your desire to do that is scarce. So anyway, I don't think we got your website out for anybody who listens and doesn't. So I, I substack for bet on it. So just put in bet on it and then my substack will come up. And then my website is just bkaplan.com. All right. We'll link to the book and your Amazon page and both of those. And thanks very much, Brian. Appreciate the time you spent. Thanks very much, Tom. It's been fantastic talking to you. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Just a few reminders to stop by TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support and check out all the ways that you can support my efforts here, including joining my Patreon or my Substack. And if you haven't already, make sure that you go to itsthefedstupid.com to download a copy of my free ebook, It's the Fed Stupid. And as always, if you like the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.